we'll get to that. Um, so please uh, join me in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we just want to thank you that we can come before you this morning, that you have made a way that we can gather together as your people, and that we have the ability and the privilege to come before you as cleansed and redeemed sinners. This morning, uh, we want to lift up Bethlehem Baptist Church um, in the north side of town here. Lord, we ask that you would be with them this morning as they gather um, with their pastor, uh, Micah Johnson, as he exposes your word to them. Lord, may you give him fruitful studies um, and just a, a joy in his ministry among that church. Um, Lord, and may they be a light in this community um, as they primarily reach um, the, uh, the black community in Greenville and the surrounding area. Lord, we ask, too, that um, Sunday mornings would not be a time of separation, that there would be no white church or black church or Hispanic church, but together we would come together and be a light holding up your truth in this community to bring glory to you. Father, we thank you that you enable those things to happen, and we just ask that you would make that evident in our community. Lord, too, this morning we want to pray for people groups that have unique opportunity to hear your word as they all come together from around the world um, for the Winter Olympics. Lord, we ask that this would be an opportunity for doors to be opened, for your name and your word to be proclaimed to people who in their home country don't have access to your word or what is being um, taught. God, we ask that you would be with believers who are over there, um, whether they're athletes or coaches or politicians or um, just spectators, that they would be um, open to the work that you are doing in and among the people there, um, and that you would open doors and provide opportunities for gospel conversations. And Lord, too, we ask for any local believers in that area. Though they may be few, they are not absent, and we ask that you would give them a strength and encouragement as they see other believers from around the world, and a, uh, just a strength to be a light in their context, in their community. May they be hospitable as people come um, from all over the place, and may they just be um, open and willing to be lights for you. <clears throat> Father, too, we want to lift up the pastor search team um, and just ask for continued wisdom and discernment um, as we are getting closer and closer every day. Um, Lord, we know that you, you know that the end is in sight, and you know what that end will be, um, even if we don't. Father, we ask that you would prepare our body to receive a new lead teaching pastor um, for the newness that comes with that, um, both the hard change and the exciting newness. Um, and Lord, we also ask for the body um, that he will be leaving, that they will transition well, um, and for his family, that they will transition well, um, moving to a different location. And lastly, Lord, we want to just lift up this morning. God, I ask that you would just help me to set aside nerves um, and any 
um, just anxiety about this passage, Lord, to speak clearly, um, speak clearly through me as a sinner to your people. And Lord, we just thank you that we can come before you as cleansed, and that we are cleansed by your completed and ongoing work. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. At the beginning of the year, we started our journey through the book of 1 John, and we are going to continue that this morning, starting in chapter 2, and we're going to spend pretty much the entire morning in two verses, and Neil set the tone right this morning that you should buckle up. Um, Maybe loosen the buckle a little, because you're going to need some breathing room, and then some room to move around because we're also going to be doing some digging. But if you would, um, please stand for the reading of God's Word. To give some context, we're going to start at the end of chapter 1 um, in verse 5, and then read down through verse 3 in chapter 2. First <clears throat> John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I really don't have a lot of places to turn this morning. Um, in fact, I would recommend if you have your Bible with you, just keep it open, and we're going to be walking through verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Um, I think Rebecca will keep those up on the screen as we go through. But there's a lot happening here. And we're just going to start it and see how it goes. <clears throat> so, looking how this first starts, in chapter 1, at the very beginning, John starts out and says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. We've got to do a little work to figure out what exactly is going on here. We see a change in tone as John begins to address a local church body. You see, when you look at later parts of this letter and some of the second John, you get this idea that there were people among this body who went out, that left this church body. And you see, too, that they were leaving because they were teaching false things and they were believing false things. Um, chapter 219, he talks about people going out. 
Later in 4.1 and in 2 John 7, he talks about how there are deceivers and false prophets who left this church. Now, before we get to chapter 2, it appears almost as if John is making these statements, these if statements that Morris covered last week, he's making them in contrast to these people who left the church. He's likely making these if statements to refute their false beliefs. And then he's following that with providing these gospel truths as to why those beliefs were false. This kind of if this, then that was kind of a common device of rhetoric used back then to teach and emphasize points instead of just saying, this is what they said, this is why it's wrong. He's saying, if they say this and then this is true, then you should be able to realize that they were wrong. And so that's where we're coming into. But now we see John turning to a pastoral tone, speaking directly to this local body. And in addition to that, one of the many reasons given throughout this letter as to why John is writing this letter. He's writing this letter that we may not sin. But perhaps you could also say, in context of that, he's writing this letter so that you may have a right view of sin. You see, what these people who left, what they believed, was in part addressed and refuted in chapter 1. We don't really know the exact details, but we do have some evidence of what it was they were believing and what it was that they, how their beliefs were wrong. Chapter 1 talks about, um, gives us some idea that they had this belief that their spiritual status of being born again had rendered them sinless. They believed they had attained a perfect righteousness and that they claimed to be without sin. This had led them to deny the significance of the atonement of Christ. Then they then had no need for the work of Christ, the ongoing work of Christ, the confession. They had no need for forgiveness, no need for growth, no need to walk in the light because they were without sin. We don't know the exact details but we have some idea that that is particularly what they were talking about. We also know that there were many common false teachings in that area at the time, um, particularly among the Corinthians, the Docetists, and the Gnostics. They presented these false teachings that are also likely being addressed in some form or fashion by what John is writing here. These teachings that would have been present in their context often questioned the reality of sin and or dismissed sin as something that was non-existent and it was separate from spiritual life. In fact, they said that all spirituality was disconnected from the material world, even to the point where many of the common teachings went so far to claim that there was, that they denied anything between spiritual and material. They denied the Incarnation, because a spiritual God could never take on material form. They denied the crucifixion because a spiritual God couldn't suffer in material form. So what we see here is what started out as just kind of a wrong view of sin. We see their philosophy of denying the world led them to a sin-denying theology. Kind of how this may have worked is you see, God created this material world, and he has these material expectations from it. 
that we work and that we walk in the light, as John continues to say, this set of ways that we ought to act, these commands that God gives us, and to deny those commands would be to essentially deny, to deny God. I think we can all agree with that. But what they're saying is that those standards, they don't apply because those are material standards where they're saying that the material and the spiritual are separate. So they're over here, and these standards are over here. Therefore, if God's standards are separate from where they're at, they have no accountability to God. And if you have no accountability, then you have no sin. Now, in our context, we may not fall under this exact same error of sin, but we do still have faulty views of sin. I think the most common view that we may run into is that we run into complacency about sin. We recognize that sin is unavoidable, and we also recognize that God is gracious, and we use that to make excuses for or downplay the severity of sin. So we have to ask ourselves, do we still believe in the pervasiveness, the captivity, and the compulsory nature of sin? Or do we see sin more as just bad choices that we are prone to make? But John doesn't just leave us there. He says, hey, if anybody does sin, and remember, he's speaking now to believers. He's speaking to those faithful that remained in the church. He says, if you do sin, what do you do with sin? If we now recognize that sin is something that is still true, what do we do with it? You know, believers who sin are perhaps one of the main hindrances for those outside of the church to be receptive to the gospel message. How do we handle this? Especially when a believer sins against somebody outside of the church, or even more especially when the entire church community sins against a particular people group. We have to follow as John does here and recognize and admit that sin still affects those who are in the faith or else we have no need of Christ. Otherwise, what are we supposed to do when our brother or sister sins against us? Or when a faith leader's sins are publicly exposed? Are we to say that everybody who sins is outside of the faith community? I hope not. Otherwise, this would be a very empty room this morning. I wouldn't be here. But at the same time, if we do say that there is sin in and among the people of God, we also ought not welcome sin into the body as if it were something insignificant. Remember, John is writing these things so that we may not sin. That is the goal. When we sin, it ought not surprise us that it happened. We talk about being an unshockable people. But sometimes we take that too far. Because sin ought to still startle us. Sin is ugly, and it is hurtful, and it is completely opposite to what we are called to in Christ. It should still be taken seriously. But not so serious to the point that we become Christian perfectionists and make being perfect an idol. 
Because that is similar to what was being done in John's context. The only way to become a true perfectionist is you would have to deny sin, deny that sin still exists, or you'd have to redefine sin so that it conveniently omits the sin that's still present in our lives. Being sinned against can be very hurtful, but I'd say it's even more hurtful when you're sinned against and then that person tries to justify it or rationalize it away as saying that, oh, it's okay. It's not really that big of a deal. We need to be careful not to justify or rationalize sin. But also, as we continue in our faith journey, we need to be careful not to have this belief that we will, or that we are, or that we will, that is until the fullness of new creation, reach some sort of upper echelon level of um, spiritual maturity that excludes us from sin or the need for ongoing forgiveness. We will not reach that on this side of eternity. Instead, we ought to be making progress towards the goal of being more Christ-like. So what then do we do with sin? We have to recognize it's here, and then where do we go with that? How do we reconcile with our continued sin and walking in light? Over and over again, the Bible tells us that we are dead in our sins, that we have all sinned, and that all sin requires death. So let's keep reading in our passage. John says, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. This sounds like good news, right? That's good. We have good news. This is how we reconcile our sin, I think. I don't know. There's a lot of big words here. I'm not really sure what's being said, honestly. Um, so we could probably spend the entire month on this section or year or years. Um, so we're going to look at it this morning, and I encourage you to continue to study this as you go home from here. But first, we have to look at who is this talking about? Why is this important? Who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, if you're ever reading through your Bible and you see these, um, this or other times where it's three titles in a row given to Jesus, that is not insignificant. That is extremely purposeful. So we have to pay close attention of what's being said here. The first one, Jesus. Okay, that's his name. That's, a, that's an easy one to give, right? But we see in the Nativity account in the book of Matthew that he is given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name of Jesus ties who we're talking about to a real, physical, material, if you will, in um, contrast to what the false teachings were, a physical, historical person. This brings in Jesus' humanity. Then we have Christ. Jesus is the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the anointed one, um, the one that's coming in the line of David. All these prophecies um, about the Christ or the Messiah. But also you see that he is described as not just the one in the line of David, but he is David's Lord himself. You see, the Christ aspect, it's not just humanity, 
but also you see that there is a divine essence to who we're talking about. And then you get to the last title, the righteous one. Together in his humanity and his divinity, Jesus Christ is the righteous one. This is in contrast to sinful man. He lived a sinless and a righteous life. He faced the same temptations that we did, but he did what we couldn't. And he was without sin. So this is who we're talking about. But what does he do? Well, look at this, the word propitiation first. Now, I don't want to do just a word study, but I think we have to understand a little bit of what this word is saying um, in order to understand the truths that are being taught behind this. The Greek word here that's being used is holasmos. Um, propitiation is the word that is translated to in English, but I don't remember the last time I used that in a conversation outside of like church. It's not a common email topic or things like that at work, and I have never ordered that at a drive-thru. Um, so propitiation might as well be Greek. It's not a common word for us. But even in Greek, it's only used, in this form, it's only used here and then in chapter 4 of this letter. There are similar words used elsewhere, but this particular word is only used here. So it's not easy to look at the rest of the Bible and say, oh, this is what it's saying. So maybe let's look at other English translations and see how they translate it. Uh, the most common translation other than propitiation is atoning sacrifice. That's a little more common. I can sort of understand what we're saying now. It's not as foreign, but atoning and sacrifice are still kind of foreign words. Some other ways to look at this is looking at the meaning of the word is looking at it as an appeasing expiation or satisfaction. Now, defining one word with another complicated word such as expiation is not super helpful. But expiation has this, carries this idea of being cleansed. It takes our sin and removes our sin. Think of like... Um, exiting or something like that, like our sin is removed. But it's not just that our sin is removed. Propitiation carries this connotation of the appeasement or the satisfaction of God's anger and His holiness. So you have this removal of sin that also satisfies and appeases our debt and God's righteous anger and His holiness. There's a footnote in the NASB translation that describes this word as a means of reconciliation with God by atoning for our sins or a sin offering. Which that's interesting, the sin offering. You know, it's not used anywhere else in the original language of the New Testament. But looking at the context of other things, um, as, as far as how ancient Greeks would have understood this word, understood this word, um, you can look at the, the Greek Septuagint, written in about the 3rd century, where they took the Old Testament and translated it into Greek. And they actually use this word. Um, and it's a little helpful to help us understand what they would have believed this word to mean in the ancient context. In Ezekiel 44, um, verse 27, this word is translated into English 
as sin offering. This is talking about what the priest does when he enters the presence of God. This is on, on that day when he, the priest, goes into the holy place, into the inner court, to minister in the holy place, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord. In order to go into the presence of the Lord, in order to go into the holy place, he must offer this sin offering, this propitiation, this helasmos. The sin offering has to be done before the priest, who is a sinful man, can enter the presence of God. So I think we're starting to get there. So let's add to this a little bit. Jesus is a propitiation for our sins. Now, a lot of people, when they read this um, passage and talk about it, they present this view based on the, the advocate, which we'll get to in a minute, kind of present this view of um, a courtroom setting where um, you have God and you have Jesus advocating like a lawyer on our behalf or something like that. But that's not necessarily what's going on here. This is not a view of a God who's unwilling or resistant to forgive, as if Jesus must plead our case convincingly or persuade in order to change the mind of the Father or even bribe the Father with some sort of sacrifice. No, in fact, God is eager to forgive. But that forgiveness is only accessible through the satisfaction of our blood debt. We owe a blood debt. We owe death because of our sins. Just like the priest, in order to come before God, a sacrifice has to be made. Now, we are all sinners. And we don't use sheep anymore. That was only a temporary sacrifice. And in our own ability, we cannot act as our own cleansing agent. We cannot act as our own propitiation our own sacrifice. Just think like, if you went into a grocery store and you stole an apple, and as soon as you walked out of the grocery store, that apple started to rot. Well, the grocery store is not too happy that you stole from them, so now you owe them an apple to make them happy. But until you've repaid that apple, you can't buy groceries anymore. You're going to starve to death. So if you take them back this rotten apple, they're going to say, no, that's not good enough. You can't repay with something that's already been tainted. <clears throat> See, the satisfaction of God's demand, this propitiation, can only be accomplished through the cleansing blood of Jesus, through his sinlessness, his purity, and his righteousness. Nothing else will satisfy that demand, only a righteous blood sacrifice. And this is why God himself in the Son became our propitiation. So don't miss what's happening here. Both our sins have been cleansed and God's righteous anger has been satisfied and that we are now acceptable to God. This is Helasmos. This is the propitiation we're talking about here. Only then can access be gained to the Father. So speaking of the Father, looking back at our passage, we have this advocate who is with the Father. 
We have Jesus. Now, advocate is a little more familiar word. But I think this is also something where we need to go back and look at what's actually being said here. Because sometimes we translate things into English, and even if it made sense at the time, maybe English has changed how we understand things, or it's just not all-encompassing of what is truly being said here. The Greek word here is parakletos. So the most accurate translation would be paraclete into English. But literally all they did was take the Greek word and make it English. So that doesn't help us understand much either. But what is being said here? What is a paraclete? This word talks about someone who is an advocate. It is a correct translation, but it can also be, mean someone who is an intercessor or someone who will plead our case on our behalf. It also can be a helper or a counselor or someone who comes alongside us to render aid. Now, this word is only used here and then God, John's gospel account. <clears throat> Interestingly, a similar word is also used and often translated as consolation or exhortation, such as when uh, Jesus is referred to as the consolation of Israel. Very similar word there. <clears throat> um, but in Jesus' righteousness, the Son has fellowship with the Father. And through his intercessory sacrifice, we too may come before the Father. When we sin... We have Jesus standing there, well, sitting at the Father's right hand with his propitiation as a standing reminder, advocating on our behalf. When we sin, Jesus points to the work that's already been done and says, they're okay. When we sin, Jesus is there with the Father and his propitiation is continually renewing us. Now, it's interesting, too, that the only other uses of this particular word always refer to the Holy Spirit, not to Jesus. In fact, um, in John 14, 6, Jesus says the Father will send another comforter, another paraclete. He's recognizing that he himself acts as this role, but there's also another aspect to this role. Remember, we said that paraclete has this connotation of both an advocate on our behalf and someone who comes alongside to provide counsel and help. Our loving God gives us both versions. We have the Son at the Father's side continually advocating on our behalf, helping us when we sin so that we can still have access to the Father, and we have the Holy Spirit as a counselor within us, teaching us and showing us so that we may not sin. Our advocate and our propitiation had to be Jesus. His power to advocate comes only from his sacrifice on the cross because he became our propitiation. Only Jesus had access to the Father without having a sacrifice. Only Jesus can stand there and continually offer himself, point to himself as that sacrifice that has been completed on our behalf. Historically, in the Old Testament, you see a pattern of the leaders of Israel interceding on their behalf with God. Particularly, you see this with Moses. But even Moses, 
couldn't come fully before the presence of God. Jesus is our new and better Moses, our new and better advocator and intercessor. You see also this pattern of the high priest interceding and offering sacrifices on behalf of their own sin and the sins of the people of Israel. But in Jesus, we have a new and better high priest and a new and better sacrifice. He offered himself as a single sacrifice and sat down at the right hand of God because his work was completed. There's just a little bit left here in this passage at the end of verse 2. And we don't need to spend a lot of time here, but I think it's worth noting where it says that, um, and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. What's not being said here, this is not John making a case for universal salvation. All of John's other writings make it very clear that only those in the Father will be saved. What John is saying here, though, um, is that Christ's work as it is completed, is sufficient and accessible to all. Not just the Jews, not just the local church that he's writing to, but to all of God's people. You see this picture in the temple, where before access to God was um, divided by a curtain, and the priest had to offer that sacrifice before he could enter the holy place. And the people were not allowed. They had to send their intercessor in on their behalf. But when Jesus died, that curtain was symbolically torn, not by man, but by God. Previously, the presence of God was only accessible by the priest and only after a right and proper halasmos, or a propitiation. The sin offering had to be offered first. But now in Christ, we have the standing, fully sufficient propitiation, continual, um, continually sufficient propitiation the sin offering, and those in Christ of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue can come before the Father. <clears throat> so this begs the question of what do we do with this? You know, I think there's different ways you can read this verse. Um, the way it sits in the letter, depending on translation, is kind of broken up under subheadings to either go with the end of chapter 1 or the rest of chapter 2 where it talks about obeying God's commands. Now, I think looking at verse 3 where it talks about obeying God's commands, that is a right and proper response to these truths about God. Let's keep it. It's cheaper for you to keep it than to ship it back. And so I joked with her. I was like, I can put this extra one in our office slash laundry slash storage slash dog room um, in case I'm working on something and I forget how to spell. Later, I caught her laughing and asked what she was laughing about, and she said, well, the alphabet doesn't really help you spell. I was like, no, that, that is true. <laughs> uh, I've never been good at spelling. In fact, I really struggled with it in school. Some of my worst grades growing up were in spelling, um, and I'm still not good at spelling. Thankfully, there's spell check and autocorrect and all those things. Um, in fact, I even confuse autocorrect where it can't figure out what I'm trying to spell at times. <laughs> but I remember when I was younger, um, especially like in middle school, like when you move past like spelling tests and things like that, and you have a writing assignment, you still have to spell stuff correctly. And I remember I would go to the teacher, I was like, I know this is wrong, I don't know how to spell this. 
Um, and they would reply, well, go look it up in the dictionary. For those of you younger than myself, a dictionary is a big book <laughs> filled with words and their definitions. But it's organized based on how things are spelled. So if I don't know how to spell something, how am I supposed to find it in something organized by how it's spelled? If it's an easy word that you can kind of sound out based on the alphabet and phonetics and all of that, you probably don't need to look it up and see how it's spelled. But that was the teacher's response. Go and do better. Good luck. You know, I knew I had it wrong, and I just knew that I didn't have it within me to make it right. So it really wasn't helpful to say, go look it up in the dictionary. In fact, I spent most of my time guessing on how you might spell it and ended up doing worse on the writing assignment because I spent all my time not writing. Or I just used really simple words and had a very surface-level writing assignment that didn't really complete what I was supposed to be doing. You see, English is very complicated. You know, we have the alphabet. And as we learn the alphabet, we learn how it fits together in words. And we learn how those words fit together in sentences. And once we master that, then we can take sentences and write essays and novels. And we can read beautiful things of poetry. We can learn from what other people have written. All of these things are accessible as you learn the English language. And as you learn it and see how other people have written, then you also can start doing your own writing. See, John doesn't just provide these truths um, and say, go and sin no more. First and foremost, or John doesn't just provide or come to us and say, go and sin no more. Obey these commandments. But first, he's providing us with a plethora of truths. And these truths are to enable and encourage us and escort us into the ability to resist sin, and the ability to obey the commandments as we walk in the light. As we learn the basics, the ABCs, so to speak, we can learn more and more about God. He is infinitely complex. And as we learn words, put them together into sentences, and then we can learn more and more, we can begin reading the novels, the big works, and the beautiful pictures of poetry of who God is and what God is doing. And in that, then we learn how we can do our own writing, how we can walk in those same truths of God. So I believe that before John gets to actions, he is exhorting his audience, first and foremost, to value right belief, to hold tight to these truths that he has just laid out, these truths that those who left that body lost. This is the application, that right theological doctrine informs right actions. And we look at the books of 1 John and 2 John and really talking a lot about Christian spirituality and conduct and how to walk in the light. But just as much as they are about that, they're about doctrine and belief, especially with what we believe about Christ or Christology. John says, I am writing these things to you, these counters to the false teaching, these true things, so that you may not fall into sin. 
This letter was written to the church where false teaching had led to false living, and it split that church. He's saying that right understanding will guard you from the sin of those who left. For example, to downplay the severity of sin is to essentially downplay the goodness of God. If sin isn't a big deal, then it's not a big deal that God saved us from it. And when we miss the goodness of God, we miss what he has done and continues to do for us as sinners. That work that now enables us to have fellowship with one another and with the Father and with the Son. This is what John's saying. You've got to understand what's being done. You've got to have right beliefs about Christ because that informs how you move. In their context, a world-denying philosophy led to a sin-denying theology. Their view of material versus spiritual led them to a faulty theology about sin and a faulty theology about Christ. We need a solid understanding of the basics, and we build that to understand more and more of the infinite complexity of God, even more than the English language that is also very complex. But we ought to seek to know more and more about him and at the same time be examining what it is that we learn. Sin Christ's advocation and his propitiation are very complex topics. Honestly, we've barely scratched the surface this morning, and they are worth more study. We ought to seek to know more and more about him and continue to learn these things. But we're not learning these things for the sake of knowledge, like the Gnostics that left the church, who loved knowledge. See, our problem is sinful rebellion. It's not ignorance. But at the same time, if we're completely ignorant, then we know nothing except sinful rebellion. They go hand in hand. But we ought not make knowledge an idol either. We ought to learn more out of love for God and a desire to grow in our enjoyment of Him and fellowship with Him. And in so doing, a right understanding of what we believe about sin, about God, and about Christ's completed an ongoing work, it will change us. We have to approach our spiritual journey with humility and a quickness to recognize and confess our sin. And we must take sin seriously. And when we do sin, we ought to know that sin isn't crushing. It's not insurmountable because we have an advocate with the Father who is continually pointing to his completed work. And we know that that completed work, his propitiation, has rendered us cleansed and forgiven. And apart from that, we cannot obey God's command. In Christ, we have these things, and we are able to obey God's command. Learning about these things informs how we obey God's command. Let me say that again. In Christ, we have these things. We have propitiation, we have advocation, we have a right view of sin. And that in that, with that, we are able to obey God's commands. But learning about these things informs how we obey God's commands. This is how we walk in the light. We are learning Christ along the way, even as we stumble. Christ's work is indeed finished. He died once for all. But at the same time, it is active and ongoing as he is with the Father, advocating on our behalf, 
pointed to, pointing to that very same completed propitious work, saying, you are good because of what I have done. You may now come before the Father. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. In the person and work of Christ, we have our advocate, our propitiation, and our righteous one. And we know that in that we can have fellowship with the Father. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that your work is both completed and ongoing. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to take sin seriously and at the same time rest in your completed propitiation and your ongoing advocation so that in Christ we may be made more and more like you. Amen.